0: I feel a little bit like I did when I attempted to make a tape recording in my own home. I sat looking at the wheels going round and I said to myself, however do I start a meeting? So I just stopped the whole thing and write the first paragraph to make a start and then it didn't sound like anything on earth. Because there's been such a wonderful presentation of truth to us in many ways today, Uh, That um, It seems almost superfluous, and yet I must go on, mustn't I? So I'm going to first of all read three passages, and then attempt to link them together. First of all, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20. The Apostle, (coughs) speaking to the saints at Ephesus, reminded them of what sort of person he had been, And then reveals that the public ministry, which had occupied his thought and time and attention, was coming to an end. Verse 22, And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me. Neither count of my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. So he was there at the parting of the ways. He didn't know exactly what he was in for, except that bonds and afflictions waited him. And then I pick up the word that our brother Streets emphasized so well this afternoon in Ephesians 3, verse 9, and to make all men see what is the dispensation. Now, some of you may have wondered why he said dispensation, because reading your authorised version, it says fellowship, doesn't it? Well, the revised version has put dispensation, because that appears to be the true reading. And to make all men see what is the dispensation of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God. So we've had bonds and affliction awaiting me. Now I'm the prisoner and I'm seeking to fulfill that new obligation. Now 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 16. Still prison. At my first defense, that word answer, no man stood with me. But all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. So he, he was hoping. That's not a strike of lightning, friends. That's just a, I'll stop for a minute and tell you that our friends over in Los Angeles received one or two colored Pictures of this chapel. So they said, Oh, wouldn't it be nice if we could see the whole beating? So you're all in it. Some of you have been taken this way round, some of you taken that way round, and they wanted to have me up here. So, oh, uh, there it is again. So that now they'll be able to say, And that's the man that's turned the world upside down. You see, not like that did the Apostle Paul. So now I want to say this. You cannot avoid, can you, as you look at the Apostle's attitude and what he said, that it was no easy path to tread, was it? It wasn't roses, roses all the way, was it? While writing to young Timothy, he said, Watch down in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. As though that was one of the things you might expect. And I, friends, have never been disappointed Oh, it's always been there, either visible or round the corner. But we can say nevertheless, notwithstanding, the Lord stood by me. Well now my theme this evening is rather to give you the depressing side. The dark side. Ooh, you're so fancy coming to a meeting like that. Oh, I know. So will you bear with me for a minute and we'll go back. And we'll start where you'd like to start, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Oh, yes, so that's good. We are going to have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, yes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. But will you notice in the same epistle, chapter 6, Verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness. And the word high places is the same identical expression in heavenly places. I won't stop to analyse that verse because it would take us a, a bit off our particular theme. But surely you can see, this is there waiting for us that as sure as your blessings are spiritual, you won't live in this world without coming up up against spiritual wickedness. And as sure as your blessings are in heavenly places, there, in that vicinity, you'll find your foes. Now, it would be a very wrong thing if we said, oh, soft pedal that, we don't want to talk about that. But friends, this Bible is our guide, our chart, our compass. Imagine a captain saying, well, I know there are reefs and shoals and rocks marked on the chart, but who worries about that? Don't you see? It's so unwise for us to be always saying to one another, oh, we are seated together in heavenly places. We are. And our friends have remembered it, both in word and in prayer. But we're not only seated friends, we're told to walk. Worthy. And we are told in the last chapter to stand seated in Christ but standing against a foe. Two aspects of the same position. So that's Ephesians. We say in chapter 4 we put on the new man. And we say in chapter 6 and don't forget to put on the whole armour of God for that new man will be the subject of attack. Never underestimate your foe. Never think that he is to be sort of discounted. but as sure as you do that, it will be fatal. We don't want to be among those people who are devil-dogged and always talking about Satan. But all the problems of the Bible from Genesis to the Revelation are all there because there's a spiritual enemy to God that costs the life-blood of his Son to redeem us from his grip. And if we see that, we can see this is no child's play. Should we turn the page of Philippians? Here the uh, the epistle to the Philippians is one of very high standard. He tells them that they were the only, only church uh, that re- remained faithful. If you look at chapter 4, verse 15, Now ye Philippians know, Also, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. And this epistle is not merely telling them the way of salvation, and the basic truth of their calling, but giving them the extra, that there is a prize of this high calling, for which they may run. Well, now you say, well, there was no need to warn those people. But if you look at chapter 3, after he's speaking about the possibility of attaining unto the out resurrection, verse 11, this is what he says. Verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Now you might have thought that that church would never need to be warned about people whose God is their belly, or the enemies of the cross. But they were. You see, the moment you begin to think you're safe, unless you're always resting in the finished work of Christ, let him who thinketh he standeth, take evil, lest he fall. So you see, even though these epistles give us our high calling, they tell us that there's an enemy that will never hesitate to corrupt and destroy, if it's possible, the very elect. We notice in the epistle to the Colossians, that in that chapter, in verse 12, he says, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. And we glory in stressing the word hath. Not something that God may do or will do, that he has done. He hath made us meet. And the word is akin to what our brother was mentioning this afternoon. He has made us sufficient. He has met every requirement. And the requirements that we shall need to stand in glory we do not know. But I hope that's not troubling you. God says I've met that. If you and I had a summons to appear before the Queen at Buckingham Palace, well we should have a look at our wardrobe and we say, Fancy calling that a wardrobe but we should get a a paper with it telling us that certain things must be. Only unfortunately we should have to pay for them and we should have to get them. But what I need to make me presentable in that day, I don't know. But I'm not worrying. I'm not even packing a case for glory, friends. No good. It's there. It's mine. Unchallengeable. Or you say, well, a person who is in that position who is made all-sufficient for that inheritance, who has been delivered from the authority of darkness, who has been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. He need not worry about this, foe. Well, look at chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a wonderful chapter of warning somebody. Look at verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you, Not merely spoil you, but make a spoil of you. Or look at verse 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward. Don't you see? There's no epistle that we've looked at now, uh, at this this present reading, but what puts marvellous blessings and equally wonderful pitfalls. Uh, Come back again to chapter 1 of Colossians. Verse 22 in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. I heard our brother start quoting that, and I thought, oh, well, I'll have to change my subject. But he only read half of it. See, there's the Lord stopping him so that I can have it. (laughs) Now look at this. Unblameable. That is the word which is usually the word without blemish. And in the old testament it is used of the priest and of the sacrifice. The sacrifice must be without blemish. And the priests who were the sons of Aaron, they must be without blemish. Well I wouldn't pass. Of course we can't see one another as we are. But I've often looked at folks who are sunbathing when I've had a day down the seaside and I thought not one of them. Not one of them would be will be passed as a priest because they've got Spots and wrinkles and blemishes and growths and I don't know what. But this is my point. Paul uses two expressions in this verse. The first one has to do with our acceptance in the temple point of view, holy and without blemish. And the other one is unreprovable. Is the word that gives us in Acts in the Romans the eighth chapter. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? So in the temple and in the law court, we're accepted. Would you say that by oh, that? That's complete, isn't it? Have you you have, of course, perhaps read the words in Shakespeare about gilding the lily and painting the rose? Now, would you believe it, that after the Apostle Paul has said in that chapter that God is presenting us in, because of Christ, he's presenting us holy, without blemish, and without the possibility of an accusation, before he finishes the chapter, he says, I want to present you too. Oh, let's look, verse 28. Whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Well, what can you mean, Paul? How can you present anyone more perfect than we've just looked at? All oh, says the Apostle Paul to me and to you, you've got the wrong idea of the word perfect. The word perfect doesn't mean, like we use the word, that is to say improvement and getting better and better. The basis of this word is the word that gives us the word end. Then comes the end, tell us and it's the word that's on everybody's lips today, the word television. Not because television is perfect, in our sense of the word, but it's just the same as the word telephone and telegram and telescope. It all means distance. Seeing at a distance, hearing at a distance, writing at a distance, and even our Saviour, the sacred words on the cross, when he said, it is finished, is the verbal form of the word telly. I have touched the tape at the end. Finished. Now he says, it's one thing for you, in Christ, to be accepted. It's another thing as to whether you personally are acceptable. Won't you try to strike a little balance between your high calling and your present walk? I want to present you as one who takes that blessed position to its legitimate end. The same argument you can see in the epistle to the Corinthians. He gives a whole list, he says, what fellowship of light with darkness, with, uh, you know, darkness and light and uh, the infidel and the believer, and he sends it all up and he says, therefore let us cleanse ourselves, cleanse ourselves perfecting holiness. Oh, you say, you can't perfect holiness, no, not in our sense, but taking holiness to its legitimate conclusion. Not merely saying, oh, I'm blessed with all spiritual blessings and that's the end of it. That's only the beginning of it down here. We haven't reached them yet, but it should have a bearing upon our attitude. And one thing the Apostle is clear from the blood of all men, there's hardly any epistle. But what he gives warning after warning about the subtlety of the attack, the wiles of the devil, the need to put on the armour of God, he warns you and me that there's an evil day waiting us before the glory is reached. And you see, it would not be to the glory of our Saviour if we are taken unawares. We've been given a weapon. Only one weapon. The sword of the Spirit. When it needs to be used, you want to know how to handle it. This is our opportunity to get to know how to use that sword of the spirit, so that when that evil day comes, we shall not be taken unawares. So I, I hope you are not feeling, oh dear, this is all this emphasis upon the foe and the enemy and the battle and the darkness and the sufferings and the tribulations. Well, they're, they're all there, plenty of them, friends, and they're written for our learning. So this man says, "Whom we preach, warning every man." warning those who were accepted in the beloved like that, that he might present them as those who had taken the truth right to its legitimate end. Now, when I read Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20, he made a prayer. He said, none of these things move me, but the one thing I do desire is that I may finish my course. Futility tells you that that prayer was granted. So, shall we look at 2 Timothy? Here in this fourth chapter of 2 Timothy, bringing this last epistle to a close, he says to Timothy himself, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. Here's a little warning for some of us. Never make boasts, except you boast in Christ. This man in Philippians used those two words. In Philippians he said, If I had my choice, I would choose to depart and be with Christ. He said in Philippians, Yea, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. I'm willing to depart and I'm willing to be offered. He says, the time's come. The time has come. I'm now going to depart. And I'm now going to be offered. But he meant what he said and so he could meet it and face it. And then he said, I have fought a good fight. But this is not a, 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 a military term. This is what we call an agonistic term. It has to do with sport, running, wrestling. A figure from the Greek sports. I have engaged in a good contest. I have finished my course. The word course is the word dromos, which you get in such a word as hippodrome. Hippo is a horse and the dromos is the course, a race course. A racing term with a crown at the end. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. Well, what does it mean by fighting a good fight and finishing course? It doesn't mean literally running. No, he said, I'll tell you, I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. And if anyone at the end of his term can in all good conscience look up into the face of Christ and say I have kept the faith, when he's fought a good fight friends and he'll know something about it too and he will have finished his course. I suppose Nero might have thought I don't know whether he ever said such words and looked at the Apostle Paul when he was conducting his defence, I'll finish him but he never did friends. the Apostle Paul finished before Nero could touch him. Oh, he said, you haven't stopped me. Notwithstanding the Lord stood by me, that by me the preaching might be fully known. Oh, there was many others to preach after him, but he said, I finished. I've done what the Lord told me to do, right to the last. Now they can lead me out, they can execute me, they can do what they will. They haven't stopped me. And they won't stop you, friend. And they won't stop me, friends. The Lord alone will say, finish. And when that comes, life isn't merely length of days wheeled about in the bath chair being an absolute nuisance to everybody. It's having touched the tape at the end and waiting then for the one thing that will make the whole thing different as different can be. Well done. Oh, what a word that will be if it's only possible in that day. What do you say, is it possible? Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. There are several crowns mentioned in the Scriptures. A crown of righteousness, said Paul. We have a crown of glory. We have a crown of life. And I may come to much the same thing, but there's an emphasis on one side or the other. Here's the man to whom we go when we want to know the great doctrine of justification by faith. The righteousness of God revealed was the very power of his gospel. Well, as a result, he's going to have a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. And now, here's the little door opening for you and me. And not to me only, but unto all them also who have, now it doesn't say, fought the fight like I have, run the course like I have, struggled like I have, stood like I have, suffered like I have. Oh, look at the list of things the man went through. Beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked. I can can well believe that he meant what he said when he said, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. But he'd have been dead long before. But he doesn't put all that onus upon every one of us. But each one in their own little measure we can fit in here. And not to me only. But unto all them also that not merely love is appearing. That's wonderful enough. But that's not what the Apostle said. But unto all them also that have loved. That is to say, they didn't start loving and then fizzled off. No, it could be written of them right to the end of their career. They loved. Oh, look at verse 10. Demas. Now, in Colossians, Demas is mentioned when he's sending salutations and remembrances. In the fourth chapter of Colossians, Demas is there. He doesn't say much about him, but he says, Demas. Now it says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved. See, having loved. Didn't say that he'd given up the faith didn't say he said, well I I don't think this idea of dispensational truth is worth a candle. he didn't say that. He loved this present age. And then you look across to chapter 3 and you see how this apostle, oh, when he is emphasizing as he does here, the character of the last days, puts his finger on the word love. You see, this afternoon, we've had emphasised before us that there is a bare possibility that we are getting very, very near to the end of this calling. All the movements in the Middle East, the lands of the Bible, seem as though the nations are getting put back into the same place that they were 2,000 years ago when Christ was rejected. And as we study the books of Daniel and the book of the Revelation, we begin to feel that these things are so. And our Saviour, in the very same chapter that he said, no man knows the day or the hour of the second coming, he also said, well, you observe the sky, you see the fig tree, won't you interpret the signs of the times? We are right to do that. Well, if that's the case, friends? How is this dispensation going to end? If you say, I don't know, well you won't be able to stand if there's a terrific onslaught, will you? Don't you see Ephesians says there's an evil day and you ought to be preparing now with that whole armour to know how to use it. And whatever you do, friends, whatever you do, don't try to wear second-hand armour. You know the story in the Old Testament, it always makes me Appeals to me. There's young David. A stripling. He goes up to meet Goliath. And Saul was. Head and shoulders above the rest of the people. And Saul said to David. Put my armour on. We'll talk about that picture I've seen outside the theatre. Where knights were bold. And I think it was John Welsh who t- played the part, and that wasn't me. <clears throat> David must have felt an absolute idiot, dressed up in armour that was on a man head and shoulders. But friends, he's no more an idiot than many I meet. They're walking about in second-hand armour. They are believing because somebody else told them something. And that won't stand you in that day, friends. No. You've got to stand alone with the Lord in that day. Every one of us. Take the case of Barnabas. What a lovely character Barnabas was. He went out of his way to bring back Saul when he was would have been forgotten. And then, he goes up to Jerusalem and he stands firm with the Apostle Paul. Barnabas. I'm looking at Galatians 2 in my mind. And in the same chapter, he joins up with Peter and he goes over with Peter's assembly. that man, you see, hadn't got it complete. He was standing in the strength of another man, Paul. And when he got in the shadow of another one, Peter, he went over. All see to it that you live up to the word Berean, friends. And the Berean is this, first and foremost. He searches to see if it is so. And if it is so, it doesn't matter who tells him. Or what anyone says, if it's so. It's his. So we put on the whole armour of God and we ought to put it on now. We ought to begin to know its use and we ought to be able to use that one weapon. We ought to be able to test the trustworthiness of the shield of faith which is able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and so on. I think that now the time might come, I mustn't go on too long this evening, just to give a word or two about the general outline of Second Timothy and then focus attention upon a few words in chapter 3. You will notice that the epistle as a whole revolves around three words, and these three words are repeated. In chapter 1, verse 8 to 18, we have the apostle forsaken. You can see, he says in verse 15, All they which are in Asia be turned away from me. And when you get to chapter 4, you find in verse 16, at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. It begins and ends on that note. But with this point, in the first chapter, they turned away from Paul. In the last chapter, they turn away their ears from the truth, and that's the order. You'll discover that when anyone wants to attack the truth that we stand for, that you stand for, they'll nearly always have a disparaging remark about the Apostle Paul. They'll tell you that you're a Paulite. And I say to them, if I was as rude as you are, and I can be friends, believe me, if I'm as rude as you are, i call you a Matthewite. Because the Lord Jesus Christ never wrote a single word in the New Testament so, if I'm a Paulite because I believe what God says through Paul, well, you're a Matthewite, because you're supposed to believe what the Lord said through Matthew. So, where are we? Nowhere. The disparagement of the Apostle Paul is one of the first things that are loosened. So, remember, that although we say, who's in is Paul was Paul crucified for you? No. But he was the chosen vessel by the Saviour, and I must honour that. And he's the only one in the New Testament who bears the title, the Apostle of the Gentiles. And I must remember that. And he's the only one who is called as a title, the Prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. I must remember that. And you see, they undermine that. So in the first chapter, Paul says, they turn away from me. In the last chapter, there's the consequence. They turn away their ears from the truth. In the last chapter, it says they shall be turned unto fables. That word is strictly the word myth, M-Y-T-H. And it is the half-sister of the word mystery. They both come from the same word. The word mystery and the word myth. They are sisters. I didn't say myth because I couldn't say miss. Myth. And if you'll pick up a modern commentary, you won't read more than two pages in the book of Genesis before you meet myth. She's there. And friends, there's this about it. If you do not see the truth of the mystery today, you'll most likely turn to myths because you can't make top and the tail of what God's doing today. As our brother said just before I started, he had a great problem about saying, spiritual Israel, and explaining it all away. So, instead of saying, oh, let's, don't say nothing, don't say anything about the mystery. They won't understand. So, you must tell them there's a secret revealed, and that reveals things that they're mystified about. So, there's the alternatives. You either believe the mystery and all its glories, or if you're not careful, it'll all become a myth. And all because, here was the Lord's messenger, and you turned away from him. Just a little bit of advertising. Comes in here. A book is almost ready, and it is the autobiography of somebody who ought to know better, but he couldn't resist it, and he's written a little biography about the early days of this earth and desert. If you're going to, if you expect in that book, which will be published soon, to have a very pious, holy beginning, well, you'll make a great mistake. I'm wanting the folks to read that book and say, well, if God could stoop and use that and make an earthen vessel of him, he can use me. And in that, I draw attention to the first meeting I spoke at in London in the interests of the rightly divided word of truth was a company of about 250 people at Hoban Town Hall in the year 1910. And although I've got a shocking memory now, I couldn't remember what I was speaking about last Thursday to save me life. For a long time, I could remember my text in 1910. And my text was borrowed from the minor prophet Haggai. Thus saith the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message. The messenger and the message go together. So when you touch Paul, you touch the message. And when you touch the message, you touch him that sent him. You touch the risen and ascended Christ. So never mind of what they call you; they called him worse things than that. Well, then that's the forsaken side. But then there's the alternative. In chapter two of Second Timothy, verse eleven, it is a faithful saying: "For if we died with him, we shall also live with him." That's a settled thing. There's no possibility of altering it. If we died with him, in the purposes of God, we shall live with him. But, if we suffer, or endure, we shall also reign with him. It isn't everybody who's going to reign because they live. There are good many people living today in this country, but they're not all reigning. So we now have a a second point. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. And if we deny him, he will also deny us. What of life? Oh no! Crown! You may be saved, yet so as by fire. You may be saved and yet suffer loss, but you can never be lost. He comes back on himself and says, if we believe not, if we're not always acting faithfully, yet he abided faithful, he cannot deny himself. There's the crown in chapter 2. And we've had the crown again repeated in the chapter 4. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown. So we have forsaken twice over, and the crown twice over, and then we have the word which means so much to us, in 2 Timothy 2, 14-26, this one, one that comes in verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Then it goes on about rightly dividing, but approved unto God. And that is echoed by the opposite to that word in chapter 3, where we have um, reprobate, concerning the faith. That's in chapter 3. Well, what's the verse of that one? 8, yes. Now, as Jans and Jambres withstood Moses, so do also those resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, reprobate. That's the very opposite of the word approved. Documents and documents. So there they are. Here's your epistle. The apostle for Satan, the truth for Satan. The clown, the clown, not sure about it there, but sure about it there, the approved and the disapproved. Well now, in chapter 3, he throws a light upon the last days. And just a few words, I don't want to take you now too long, but I thought it would be wise just to focus attention upon this bit. I'll read what I've written down here so that we don't turn backwards and forwards. In the first chapter of the epistle to the Romans, in the last verses, there is a horrible presentation of what pagan Rome was like. It says they were boasters, they were proud, they were disobedient to parents, they were without natural affection, they were implacable, and they were reprobate. But you say, why are you reading from Romans 1? Because if I read from 2 Timothy 3, I read boasters, and proud, and disobedient to parents, and without natural affection, and truth-breakers, but that's the word implacable, and reprobate. What an awful thought. This present world, with all its progress, this present world after 2,000 years gospel preaching, this present world with all its science, is going into paganism. And you've only got to read literature. You've only got to study the trend of things to know that God is not in all their thoughts, it's going. And all the evils that arise out of that are coming. Paganism. So we look a little bit more at chapter 2, uh, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. This know also, that in the last days, perilous times, chukak, perilous times, the word is used to describe the man who was untamable in the tomb, you remember, possessed of devils. That's the character. Not a very happy thought, is it? But isn't it good to face it that it's there so that we may be prepared? Now the word love doesn't occur in these verses on the surface as it should. So I'm going to put them back. For men should be lovers of their own selves. Lovers of money. And then in verse 3, without natural affection. And then in verse 4, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. The whole terrible thing depends upon love. So Dinas, at the sake of me, having loved this present age. Where your love is, you see, will decide your destiny. All these people, they love pleasure rather than love God. They love themselves. They love money. And then, in, in marvellous to say, in spite of it all, they're without natural affection. Without natural affection. Now, there are some of God's people who think that natural affection is something that they've got to say, oh, that's not for me. So they've got faces about that length, and they've got no, what do you call, physical statistics at all. They're very much like me, uh, like my old dad, uh, just like a a laugh, you see. But natural affection is what God has implanted in the human breast, and should be encouraged. So it is. In the first activity, the preparation for this is going on. Doctrines of demons, denying marriage, mustn't eat this. Oh, how well, holy they are. They won't even get married. They won't even eat this. And when the time comes, they take the veil away and say, that's what it's going to lead to. This. You see. Goes on to say, traitors, heady, High-minded, all oh dear, dear. And then, having a form of godliness. That's the marvel of it is. The marvel of it. That in spite of the fact that they have no place for God and don't want it, they've still got to have a form of godliness. Take all manner of shapes and all manner of forms, but it will not be the real thing. They deny the power that of What are you going to do about that? Well, you can't do anything about it, friend. The day is too long, it's gone, even in the apostles' day, he said. From such turn away. Only God can deal with folks who got to this position. From an outside point of view, you may preach to them, but don't try to start a movement to improve them. And then we come to chapter four. I charge thee, brethren, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead and is appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Now, there are two words in the New Testament, mainly, there are more words than one, two words mainly that are translated preach. The one is the obvious one that gives us the word evangelist. Evangel, the gospel, a gospel preacher. And a gospel preacher seeks to persuade. He induces. He does his utmost. He pleads. But that's not the word here. This word means to act as a herald. Now whenever there's a death of a king in this country, as in others, they have no interval, so that there should be no usurpation of the crown. The king is dead, long live the king. The the herald goes out and he doesn't say, excuse me for interrupting you for a moment, but uh, would you mind, or there's nothing like that. That proclamation goes out without any beseeching. And woe to you, if you don't listen to it. You may be a traitorous person, even though you didn't intend so. See, he says, proclaim the word. Instant in season. And we really often quote this, instant in season and out of season. But There is no end there. But it's always in season, from God's point of view, and will always be out of season, to the other person's point of view. It has been said that the gentleman is one who will never introduce a topic into a society that will be at all upsetting. Well, you and I can't be gentlemen. Because the moment we speak of Christ in a good many societies, we upsetting. So you've got an outside position. Herald a word. Supposing they don't hear the time will come when they will not endure, sound doctrine. But after their own lust they shall think of themselves teachers having itching ears. Now, I've met some folks who thought that it was the teachers that had the itching ears. But it's the listeners that have the itching ears, and this man has got qualifications that, alas, he's received. Sometimes it is theological training, and he's a proper tickler. And that's about all the poor man does. Occupies a pulpit. Tickles the ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth. And they shall be turned unto myths. We're getting now to the edge of things here, friends, in this story. And then he comes back to Timothy. But watch thou in all things. Not merely pray. Watch and pray. You watch because of the enemy. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make foolproof of thy ministry. And so I felt that it might be a wise thing this evening, if I had the opportunity to speak here, not merely to dwell upon our blessings, but just to say, and don't forget, the warnings, they're all a part of Scripture, they're all written for our learning, and we shall be the better equipped if we give heed to them. Now, we won't go away and say, oh, what a dreadful prospect is in front of us. No. Weeping may Endure for a night. But joy cometh in the morning. So, whether it's a long time or a short time, whether it's hard fighting or whether it's slack, we know that when that day dawns, we shall look back and say, It's all been well. It's such an encouragement to us, friends, at this little chapel to be so discommoded that we haven't got room for you all. I feel like I have spoken at another meeting and I'm looking at one friend now, he knows what I'm going to say, I think, when I say to them at one particular meeting, are you all sitting uncomfortably? (laughs) Then I'll begin. (laughs) Well, I hope you'll all sit uncomfortably in this meeting many a time yet, friends, because of the interest that you manifest in coming, all the journeys you have, all the distance you have uh, to share with us on these occasions. We are very grateful for it. And you are conscious, aren't you, that this is like Euclid speaks of our, uh, neither point nor magnitude. We are a little centre. It's not what we do here that matters most, it's what the outcome is. And when we begin to think, as we are learning, that we have an invisible congregation that are practically in the five continents, that I ask you to pray for me and our brothers who share this tape recording. For when I call up here on a Thursday evening, I think, well, here I go again. I'm going to start speaking, and what I say is going to be repeated over and over and over again in America, in Australia, in New Zealand, in different parts of Africa. Some go to India, up and down this land and in Scotland, and I don't know where else. Over and over again. It must run now into thousands. Because I've tipped over the 300 and they're multiplied and duplicated over and over again. Isn't it a joy to look back over the past and say, that's what God can do. He can pick out one person who hadn't got the remotest qualifications for the job at all. And He could set him apart and He could hold him up so that in spite of all sorts of temptations, He didn't give way and He set His seal upon the truth now. Won't you take courage from that, friend? Won't you go back and say, well, what God can do for him? Who's he? (laughs) Who is he, like they said about? Who is Paul? But a messenger, but a vessel. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. Dear earthen vessels, will you not put yourself at the disposal of this same great Fiddler? That you may go back and say, well, it's not eloquence, it's not learning, or well, we want them all, but the one thing is faithfulness. And if that's the case, oh, what a blessing it might be to somebody that you'll be meeting in the days to come. We hope we shall have opportunities of meeting again in this place. But one day we're going to have a meeting that will put this into the shade, won't it? And that's the thing that holds us together more than anything else. The one hope of our calling. The blessed hope of one day being with him and like him. And if we have to wear armour, and if we have to endure, if we have to fight a fight, if we have to wrestle, not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual powers, well, we say that's the same as Israel had to do with the Canaanites in their inheritance. It seems to be true all the way down the line. So God give us great faithfulness, that we may still rejoice that we are seated, still remember that we should walk, and not forget that he says that you may be able to stand in the evil day. May the Lord give us grace that we may respond to whatever he has chosen to lift out of his word this afternoon and this evening, and make it our own.